I'm Marianne Williamson, and welcome to the Transform Podcast, where we will examine the forces of chaos that threaten to destroy us, and the acts of love that can make the whole thing transform. My first question to you is, do you believe that capitalism is so inherently flawed that it is not possible for it to be salvaged or transformed in such a way as to provide the basic necessities for the majority of people. Hi there, my name is Esther. I would say that the American economy is working for me, and I'm very, very grateful. But I think it's completely out of balance and wrong because it's not working for the majority of the people. And I'm I, just because it works for me does not mean it's good. Hello, Marianne. My name is Marilyn, and I am calling from Glenmore, Pennsylvania. Capitalism and theory sounds great. Work hard and you will do well. Unfortunately, in practice, greed takes over. Those who do well not only make money, they also become the ones who get to make up the rules. Wealth in itself is not a crime, but neither is poverty. Somehow people at the top income levels lost their moral center. Really interesting new analysis from the Washington Post. Let's put this up there on the screen. It's called The Billionaire Boom. So Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, Mark Zuckerberg, and six other billionaires made more than $360 billion during the pandemic. During that first year of the raging COVID pandemic, it was made very, very clear that the richest people in America, people who could have said, okay, guys, this is life and death. This isn't just about me making more billions of dollars. This is about me showing up, maybe putting to the side all those billions of dollars more that I could make off this pandemic, actually coming together to do what we can to stave off hunger, to stave off homelessness, to stave off evictions, to stave off the worst aspects of the suffering of the American people during this time. They had that chance. They did not come forward. Here's labor reporter Sarah Jaffe. I think there's something really profound in in the realization that your boss really doesn't care if you die. Not to put too fine a point on it, but like really, you know, when people realize that, that there can be this massive global catastrophe that is still ongoing, that we are just sort of expected to keep going to work like it's normal, keep working, whether that means we're still going to work, you know, for many people who kept going to work, whether they be healthcare workers or service workers during the pandemic, it just got more dangerous and, and less, you know, in any way enjoyable. Or the people whose, you know, jobs largely, like me, whose jobs largely shifted online, and we're still expected to sort of keep up the same rates of productivity. Again, knowing this massive global catastrophe is going on, some of us got sick too. Um, or people who just lost their jobs. And now, you know, you see the same industries that laid off millions of workers complaining that they can't get workers now because nobody wants to work anymore. And we don't talk about, A, that, you know, 600 and some odd thousand Americans have died. And B, um, why should people be loyal to these industries that really weren't loyal to them? Professor Richard Wolff. I want a government controlled from below. Most Americans agree with this. And one of the ways you do that is you give workers the, the industry. That is working people together who are giving the taxes that keep the system going. Hi, Marianne. My name is Stanley. I grew up in Indiana 
and I'm the grandson of four union workers and the son of a Teamster truck driver. Um, I grew up in the 60s and 70s in Fort Wayne, Indiana, where it was a robust industrial union economy. Um, consumers at that time didn't need a million things, and consumers also bought union-made products. White-collar white collar professionals and, and, and business owners in our city bought union products because they knew that it supported the working class that made a more holistic, wealthy community. Part of the very systematic and concentrated effort to destroy the American left has been the attack on unions. Of course, the attack itself was not new. What happened with the Red Scare, right, is that you purged the communists from the labor movement. And with that, not only did you purge people who actually thought that workers should control the means of production, but you also, among other things, purged like the anti-racist element from a lot of unions. So a lot of these left-led unions were the ones that were saying that black workers should have the same rights as white workers. That So this, this tradition was not just, it was Marxist, but it was not just Marxist. It was also the one that was most attuned to what's actually going on in the workplace and really thinking how to change those relations of power, not just based on what they read in a book, but what they saw in front of them every day in Detroit, right? Where black workers would be the last hired, first fired and put in the crappiest jobs. Um, and so that whole tradition, purging that whole tradition, um, it has meant that the labor movement so often settled for, again, a rising slice of the pie for basically white men. What to me was so sad to witness over the last few decades was how many people were born into a world where it was seen as so easy to demonize and to mock and deride unions, to see the sadness of so many people who still worked within the labor movement and knew its importance. So I'm very excited to see what's happening now. It's like labor has become rediscovered. Union workers on strike for a dollar more per hour at the largest produce seller in the nation, saying they are essential workers. The UAW also wants to end some of the concessions it made in 2009 to help GM through its government-led bankruptcy, including lower pay and benefits for new workers. More than 500 Frito-Lay union workers striking today for the first time ever in the company's history. There's an entire younger generation you see people rediscovering the importance of the labor union, embracing it in a new way. I'm very excited. I think it's one of the most hopeful signs that we have going. The fact that you're seeing union activity um, and strike activity and all of this stuff being led by service industries, caring industries, sort of public sector like teachers, um, it's not an accident. These are the jobs that, that more and more people do now. And these are the jobs that our economy is built on now. And so whether we're talking about the fight for 15, which is, you know, fast food workers, retail workers, or we're talking about nurses on strike, like the nurses who have been on strike for, I don't even remember how many months now, um, at St. Vincent Hospital in Massachusetts, which is a for-profit hospital chain. Um, we see people realizing that these jobs are actually the ones that, that everything hangs on now, and that they do have some power to say, we're not gonna keep working in these conditions. One of the other things that's really interesting has been the creative sectors. So workers who you would not normally think of as union workers, my industry of journalism, art museum workers are having a real union wave, um, and other creative industry workers, um, video game workers, like programmers at Activision Blizzard are talking strike right now. Um, 
So the tech sector, right, there's the Alphabet Union, which is a small but growing organization of workers within Google. Well, hundreds of Google workers are taking a historic step in Silicon Valley by announcing the creation of a union. I think the question with tech is really interesting because you have sort of very well-paid programmers at the top often, but there's a lot of not very well-paid workers in tech that um, see the different way that they're treated and are not really thrilled with that. So these are the sectors that I'm watching that I think is going to be really interesting, especially when the workers, like the tech workers at Amazon, start connecting with the warehouse workers at Amazon. So those are the places that I think um, there's exciting possibilities right now. I think that what's happening in a lot of these industries, again, is that you do see young people who are recognizing that this industry that they were promised that was going to be their dream job, right? This is sort of what I was writing about in my book. Um, they get there and the job doesn't pay. So like the workers at the New Yorker magazine, right, which is like the most prestigious publication in the English language or one of them. And you get there and you can't pay your New York City rent on what they pay you. And so, you know, you have young people who have gotten an education. They are, in many cases, saddled with tens, twenties, thirty thousand dollars in student debt, um, maybe more, maybe a hundred thousand dollars. Who knows? And things aren't adding up. And so, the interesting thing is that those people who are not in industries that we think of as union heavy are turning to this age-old sol uh, solution of organizing and really saying that, you know, these, these industries tell us that this is prestige, but we can't eat prestige, as the sign said at the New Yorker March. Here's Nina Turner. It is important for us to know that the policy choices that this country makes, these things are not happening by accident or by happenstance. You know, we talk about this nebulous system and sometimes people are like, well, who's controlling that system? Well, there are faces. There, there's real flesh and blood behind those systems. And so we can change the system anytime we want. I'm out here because 64 million Americans make less than $15 an hour, and I'm one of those Americans. I make $9 an hour, I work at Wendy's, I've been working for Wendy's for nine years, and four months ago, me and my children were homeless, out on the street, didn't know where to go, and I was going to work every day, unable to pay my bills. Increasing the minimum wage, I think Democrats can do that right now to $15 an hour, which is the floor, it's not the ceiling. Some economists say that if we had, if, if the minimum wage increase had kept pace with uh, with inflation or with productivity, it'd be closer to $23, almost $25 instead of $15 an hour. Those are things that we can get done right now in real time. Here's Gravity Payment CEO, Dan Price. Giving money to people that don't have enough that are stressed about money is proven to be the most effective antidepressant in the world because it's that lack of money that causes the depression. And when we think about the mental health crisis that we have in this country right now, just an absolute crisis, of course, you know, access to mental health, uh, health care and well-being and all those sorts of things is a basic essential that we should be providing, but also it's not just that we need to help people feel better, we need to stop driving people crazy. We had an underlying epidemic to begin with, uh, record levels of increase in suicide and overdose even before COVID-19 hit. We need a massive infusion of economic hope and opportunity into the lives of the American people. That means at least $15 an hour minimum wage. It means Medicare for all. It means free college. It means a cancellation of the college loan debt. 
43 million borrowers in this country owe about one and a half trillion dollars in federal student loan debt. There was a time when this country acknowledged what a benefit it is to the entire economy when we allow as many people as possible to become college educated. After World War II, the GI Bill gave out of the returning 16 million veterans, gave almost 8 million of them education, higher education through the GI Bill. Up until the 1970s in California, anyone could attend college at the University of California various branches for free. Governmental policy no longer reflects the position that our economy is better off if more people receive a higher education. You still have the demonization of the government. And I think it's because of the anxiety of the business elite that if the government were really to get involved the way massive people wanted, then they can't hold on to their special position. And I think they're right. Medicare as it exists today was a problem for the status quo at the time. And people were saying, you can socialize medicine or the country's going to go bankrupt or this will never work. The same voices we are hearing today trying to stop us from having universal health care in the United States, those same voices were there when the first debate for Medicare was happening. So this stuff is not new. In 1961, Reagan waged a massive anti-Medicare campaign as governor of California. This was the idea that all people of Social Security age should be brought under a program of compulsory health insurance. This program, I promise you, will pass just as surely as the sun will come up tomorrow. And behind it will come other federal programs that will invade every area of freedom as we have known it in this country. Until, one day, as Norman Thomas said, we will awake to find that we have socialism. When people say socialism today, a lot of times they just mean it as like an insult because that was kind of the way that you would insult people in the past. To those watching at home tonight, I want you to know we will never let socialism destroy American health care. But Trump is now out of the White House and President Joe Biden is now setting the agenda. But today I'm about to sign two executive orders who basically the best way to describe them to undo the damage Trump has done. There's nothing new that we're doing. The president is concentrating on an effort to lower the age of Medicare availability, as well as the expansion of Obamacare. But many of us are asking, why, since that still leaves millions of Americans underinsured or uninsured, why don't we just go for Medicare for all? And where's the money coming from? Is it out of a surplus? Can we go over to the Federal Reserve and, and open this big safe? There's a big cache of money. Is there a rainy day fund? Is there a savings account that we can tap into? People who say that we cannot afford these things are the same people who didn't have a problem with the $763 billion defense budget to which they added $25 billion. We weren't even supposed to discuss it. They seem to have no problem passing a $2 trillion tax cut in 2017 that gave 83 cents of every dollar to the richest corporations and individuals in our society. Here's economist and author of The Deficit Myth, Stephanie Kelton. You look at the Republicans and you look at the tax cuts that they passed at the end of 2017. 
right? Donald Trump said, biggest tax cuts in the history of the world. This is the greatest thing. I'm the greatest president. I passed these huge tax cuts. Why did Republicans pass those tax cuts knowing that they would add about $2 trillion to government deficits over the course of 10 years? Why would they do that? Because they understand perfectly well that by running a larger budget deficit, they are producing a financial windfall, that it goes somewhere. Somebody gets to keep more dollars. Where did they go? Mostly to people in the top 1%. 83% of the benefits on the personal income tax cut side went to people in the top 1% of the income distribution. You have corporate income tax cuts benefiting large corporations. So they're not bashful about using the deficit to carry out their agenda, to divert resources, financial resources into the hands of the people they are most interested in helping. Too often, the federal budgeting process works not for the broad majority of this population in, you know, devoting resources to the kinds of things that we know people support. Universal health care, popular, right? Canceling some student loan debt, popular. Uh, doing a stimulus checks, popular. We know the kinds of things that people want, but the budgeting process works very well when it comes to, as you said, the Defense Authorization Act. We can, you know, um, conjure up votes to fund hundreds of billions of dollars for the Pentagon, uh, but somehow Congress feels that it, it can turn its back on people and essentially face no penalty for that. I did not have high hopes for Joe Biden. Economists like Bob Cutler celebrate some very progressive appointments that have been made by the president. And I've been very pleasantly surprised because even though he's got a very slender working majority in Congress, he's used his executive power to appoint people who are very much in favor of radical regulation of capitalism. Biden has been pressured by a quite alive left in the United States. Kuttner is very excited about these appointments because he recognizes that they are absolutely fundamental in their anti-monopolistic and antitrust focus. If I had been asked the names of the two people who ought to be in charge of competition policy uh, under a, a radical administration, I would have said uh, Lena Khan and Tim Wu, and Tim Wu is at the White House in charge of competition policy. So this is, this is really quite extraordinary. Many of the things that President Biden is talking about were things that should have been done 35 years ago. As important as it is to fight monopolies, as important as it is to get real about antitrust, those things of themselves will not be enough. Hi, Marianne. My name's Keith. I'm calling from New York City. American capitalism is working for me in some ways and not working for me in others. Uh, my five years of my adult life spent living in Australia gave me a firsthand experience of seeing a welfare capitalist society that has a really, really strong safety net and everyone benefits from it. And there's still some capitalism, really ambitious people can do their best to accumulate a lot, um, but everyone has a roof over their heads, their social support, the person working at the gas station has enough to take his family of four on vacation, maybe a few times a year, uh, and an affordable place to live. And that's just not the case here. 
One of the things that's becoming increasingly clear is that America is stymied time and time again by an unwarranted, unearned arrogance and hubris by which we hold to these myths about ourselves, continuing doing things that aren't even working with the idea that we're exceptional, we're better, when in fact country after country is doing things in certain ways much better than we are. It's time for us to get off our high horse and listen. Here's Peter Joseph. What you have is a global circumstance where the United States, not only its political leadership, but in many ways much of the population, I'm not saying the majority, have been brainwashed into thinking that any kind of socialist anything, uh, and that's not even the correct context, but that's the way people refer to it as, is somehow a failure of individual drive. Or we haven't pulled up our bootstraps well enough, and oh, we can't do that. We're going to be in gulags if we have Medicare for all. And I, I bring that up in terms of the global context because... You know, Sanders, he's like very simple. It's almost boring. You want to impose the same fundamental things that we see in other countries that work. Why don't they work here? It's because there's a completely different neurotic culture and power establishment. It's a, it's a different angle of what has happened over the course of the past hundred years. Hey, Marianne. This is Raylene Moore, and I'm in Alabama. My thoughts are that we need to use the best of capitalism and the best of socialism. Pure capitalism doesn't work. Pure socialism doesn't work. But the best of each one of those will give us an economic system to support a healthy democracy. If capitalism in its fundamental premise in free market behavior was allowed to actually work, meaning no state intervention, which is at the core of the principle, then the system would blow up because of market externalities, which is pretty much what we're seeing you know, across the board today. There's no, uh, there's no mechanism within the structure to compensate for poverty or pollution as the two main factors, and of course the inequality, uh, that is you know, the relative inequality which coincides with poverty. I think we can save capitalism, if you like, although I prefer a different language, go beyond capitalism. Thank you, capitalism, for what you achieved. You've had your chance. You've done your stuff. You've done a good job in some areas, but it's time to take yourself seriously, that when you endorsed democracy rhetorically, we now have to bring it home and put it right inside your enterprise. And I believe, and I think I can show you, that if we really believe in democracy, if we're going to be honestly willing to do that, I think the decisions our businesses will make will be radically different from what we have seen. And that is, I think, our best hope to get beyond the failures of this system, holding on to its achievements, but saying goodbye to the things that have demonstrated now for quite some time, they are obstacles to what we know the people as a whole need.
when people say it's naive or it's too expensive to do the kinds of things that we're talking about here, I'll tell you what's naive. What's naive is to think that our democracy will last and that possibly the species will even survive for another hundred years if we don't make the kinds of changes we're talking about here. People are not going to take this forever. We cannot actually watch billionaires literally setting money on fire to shoot themselves into space and just accept that as the way things are going to go. You need to be shaming billionaires. You need to create a new sense of connection between people, a spiritual connection that says we have to create equality, we have to create equity, we have to find a way to do this to create balance, not just because it's the right thing to do from a moral standpoint, because if we don't, it doesn't work. Economist Marshall Steinbaum. A big part of the edifice that we're expressing dissatisfaction with and that we're saying has failed and been shown to have failed basically felt that the economy is this kind of self-structuring impervious object that cannot really be altered by policy at all right in any sphere and you know it just sort of operates the way it operates and we and we policymakers are incapable of altering it in any way and i don't think that is true so you listed a bunch of policy areas where big differences could be made in the way that the economy works i feel like 20 years ago we would have just kind of wrung our hands in despair about the fact that we can't do anything um, because this is just the way the economy works. Whereas I would say now we have uh, what amounts to a, 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 a constructive agenda. And, you know, obviously the harder task is actually implementing that agenda. We are in a state of decline. And that's not a disaster. That's not a tragedy. That is a part of life. And we ought to embrace it. We ought to say, okay, what do we do in that circumstance? Try to make it as comfortable as possible. Try to begin to think seriously about basic changes so that the system that is passing away is replaced by something that will be better for us so that we don't see it as, a, as, a, as an end, but as an end of one thing and the beginning of something else. Whether we call that the end of capitalism or the evolution of capitalism matters much less than whether the people of the United States open our eyes and recognize the corporate tyranny that is in our midst. Gilded Age was a time where there was extreme wealth. There was a big gulf between uh, the people who have and the people who have not. And we find ourselves in the 21st century revisiting that. The, the promise, though, in the problem that after that first Gilded Age came the progressive movement, and here we are in the 21st century version of the Gilded Age, and the progressive movement is in full effect. Do you think tra uh, capitalism can be saved? Do we want to save it? The Transform podcast has been produced by John Ahrens and Lauren Selsky. Sound design and original music by John Ahrens. And to hear my full interviews with the guests featured on the podcast, go to mariannewilliamson.substack.com. I'm Marianne. Thanks for listening.